Public Radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill. Welcome to the local edition news and information keeping you connected in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dolt. And coming up, we'll be checking in with Chris Gillardi of New York Focus, who has a feature on nonprofit organizations in the state that are providing tactical equipment to Israeli settlers in the West Bank. But first up, it's our weekly check-in with the Times Union Hudson Valley Bureau. I spoke to Philip Pantuso earlier today about the latest stories they have over at timesunion.com, starting with a story about two local correctional facilities in the Radio Catskill listening area that have received mixed reviews from a watchdog group. Here's Philip. So this week, a watchdog group called the Correctional Association of New York, uh, which works with the state to monitor conditions across New York prisons, released audits that focused on two state-run prisons in Napanak, um, the Medium Security Ulster Prison and Maximum Security Eastern Correctional Facility, which uh, which only houses male inmates. These audits found... Um, kind of a, a number of, of issues, sort of mixed reviews overall. Um, let start with the bad. Um, the group reported that some of the inmates there are dealing with irregular access to certain services, in particular fresh fruits and vegetables, but also quality medical and dental health care. Um, and many respondents noted that they have long wait times, sometimes up to a month, uh, for, for pressing medical issues, including cancer and diabetes. Um, Somewhat even more alarmingly, perhaps, um, is that at least one-third of the inmates in both prisons said that they had witnessed or experienced some form of physical or verbal abuse. Um, in, in Ulster County Prison, there were 10 reports of prison staff using the N-word while addressing inmates. Um, but there were a couple of, uh, I guess, positive things to emerge um, from this report, which was based on interviews with um, prison, pop- prison population and with staff members, as well as first-person observations of prison programs. The, positive, the report notes positively that there are some programs at Eastern in particular that they say should, quote, serve as a model for other facilities in the, in the state. Um, and they also highlighted a senior living program at Ulster that they said most inmates viewed positively. These are mixed reviews, essentially. Like, where do these reports go? Does this just go to the public so the public's aware? Or are they reporting to any kind of uh, actual agency that has oversight and might be able to correct some of these things? Well, it kind of goes in a couple of of ways. So um, they're for the public, but they also, the, the group, the Correctional Association of New York, also works with the State Department of Corrections. Its reports, as far as I know, are not mandated or binding to enforce uh, any kind of changes. So I don't know that DOCCS necessarily has to make any kind of response or policy change as a result of this report. But this group does regularly audit state prisons uh, essentially as a way of providing um, oversight to uh, to the, to the state-run prison system. Um, it also, in addition to kind of looking at, you know, in isolated correctional facilities, it will also do larger systemic examinations of the prison system as well. 
Okay, and in another story, um, looking at the crime side, there's a, a grand jury that's considering a murder case? Yeah, this will be the first of two crime stories I'll talk about, actually. So uh, earlier this year, um, Orange County uh, charged a man in uh, what had been kind of a, a cold case, the killing of a, of a, of a young woman named Megan McDonald in 2003. The man who was charged is named Edward Holly. He's a 43-year-old Wabayanda man. The police and prosecutors allege that he had a relationship with Megan McDonald and that that relationship had recently ended and that might have been the cause for the murder. Anyway, um, the Orange County District Attorney uh, had previously represented, when he was in private practice, a prior person of interest in this case. So um, he pretty shortly after the charges were announced, he recused himself for the case from the case and requested a special prosecutor to be appointed. That special prosecutor spent most of the, the summer and into the fall reviewing evidence. You know, there's, there's like two decades worth of evidence here. Um, and at some point recently, she began presenting that evidence to a grand jury. We don't know exactly when, um, but we this this revelation emerged on Wednesday in Walkhill Town Court during an otherwise unremarkable court appearance in which lawyers for both parties appeared to set a date to return to court uh, early next year. Um, the special prosecutor, whose name is Julia Cronaccio, she told the judge that she uh, is presenting evidence to the grand jury uh, as, as they spoke, basically. So, you know, we don't exactly know where in the process that is. Um, our reporter, Lana Bellamy, asked, and um, the prosecutor declined to comment. Um, we should say that uh, Edward Holly, the man accused, his attorney, has repeatedly said that there's no case against this client. Um, he's suggested previously that the delay in presenting this material to the grand jury is part of uh, or explains or just is, is fueled to the, his argument that there isn't much of a case to present at all. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, the, they'll be back in court on January 31st, um, and that's probably the next update we'll have. All right. The next crime story you're looking at, this involves a, a, a trial for a woman accused of killing a Catskill activist. Yeah, so this was, this was kind of a crazy story. In 2021, a, a Catskill resident named Scott Myers um, was found dead from a stab wound to the neck. The woman who was charged in that death, her name is Carrie Weiser, she was arrested um, on November 27th of 2021. The two had reportedly met at a bar uh, there in the, in the village of Catskill. And uh, her trial was set to begin this week on Wednesday with uh, jury selection. And our reporter who covers Columbia and Greene County's Roger Hannigan Gilson was starting to work on a kind of preview of what the trial would be and discovered that that morning, Monday morning, that the case or the trial had been adjourned with no explanation given and no future return date set. So he did a little bit of digging over the last couple of days and found uh, yesterday on Wednesday that the Greene County District Attorney uh, had told the judge that, uh, or had told him that the judge decided to adjourn the trial when an evidentiary issue was raised. Um, 
we're not exactly sure what that is yet. And I don't want to speculate. Um, you know, there's, there's some video evidence that police have in this case that has been the subject of a lot of rumor. Um, so it could have something to do with that. It could have something to do with something else. Um, we'll probably have more on this story, hopefully by the end of this week. Um, Roger, the reporter, is going through all of the case files right now to try to figure out what might have happened here. Um, but the judge or the district attorney told him that the judge basically wanted to avoid uh, the possibility of, of an appeal or some other such legal hangup um, with regards to the evidence if they were to move forward um, based on the current understanding. Right. That's that's exactly what I was going to ask without having to speculate on what the evidentiary uh, issue was. It sounds like they're trying to avoid some problems. So so this is just a delay so that they don't have some kind of problem you know, like a mistrial or an appeal or something like that. They want to get everything straightened out, whatever side has the evidentiary issue. Correct. Yeah. It, it, you know, at, at this point, that's, that's what they're saying. It's, it's a delay. It's not um, it doesn't appear as if the two sides are working out a kind of settlement or anything like that. Um, I do. Ex- it, it does seem seems like both parties are expecting that this still will go to trial. We just don't exactly know when that will be now. OK. And then uh, finally, uh, well, first, before we get into the story, I want to, to remind listeners that last night we ran a piece of. Uh, or what people might call extreme weather. And I'm so I'm pointing that out to you, reminding listeners, because your last story here is about uh, extreme weather uh, impacts in New York. But this isn't about roads. It's about insurance. Yeah. So this is something we've seen in other states where extreme weather events have become more common to the extent that they start to affect individual homeowners, um, I think probably the most notable example is in California, where in certain parts of the state, it's now nigh impossible to get fire insurance because, you know, for the for the insurance providers, it just really doesn't make sense uh, to provide coverage there at any kind of reasonable rate because they know they're going to have to pay out. Um, you know, we haven't really kind of seen that as a live issue here in in New York, certainly, you know, certainly in our coverage areas. Um, and we're not really to that point yet, but there was uh, a hearing in New York City um, organized by the uh, organized by the state assembly uh, yesterday to hear from uh, homeowners and auto insurance or from the homeowners insurance and the auto insurance industries about the potential impact of extreme weather on the state's insurance market. Um, that hearing was led by a Queens Democratic Assemblyman, uh, Dave Weprin, who, uh, who chairs the, uh, in- the state insurance committee and also uh, a state Democrat who chairs the environmental conservation committee. And basically, you know, consider the messenger here, but they, they noted what, a fairly grim uh, sort of medium-term outlook for uh, property insurance in particular in the state of New York. So 
as I mentioned, New York hasn't really had the same kind of price hikes that states like uh, California and Florida have had as a response to, you know, escalating claims due to extreme weather. Nor have providers begun to pull out of the state um, altogether. But they did say that absent certain changes, the insurance pool could read a could reach a crisis stage. Um, and essentially, they called for a number of like kind of tougher regulations from from the state and from municipalities over such things as roof construction, um, drainage systems, um, freeing up funds for homeowners to to do to kind of weatherize or uh, or otherwise kind of proof their houses against this kind of extreme these kinds of extreme weather events, which you know we're, we're starting to see more of. So it's definitely going to be an interesting thing to monitor. Um, in part, I think because there's there's been some sort of interesting reporting out of places out of states that are further ahead of this kind of insurance crisis timeline than New York is to indicate that the kind of lack of affordable or in some cases any insurance for individual homeowners uh, to deal with extreme weather events might be a real force for, uh, for, for those states to start devoting actual resources toward um, you know, combating extreme weather events yeah. and might be the thing that, that like gets us to stop building in certain zones that are particularly vulnerable to extreme weather events. So, you know, like, you know, like I've said, New York is a different scenario than, than certain places in, in California and, and on the Gulf Coast, but still certainly something to monitor. Bigger picture, I think, you know, over the last 30 years, uh, the influence of uh, money interests, profit interests, have really weighed in on the side of uh, not addressing climate change uh, when it comes to like yeah. energy industries and things like that. OK, but now you're basically talking about insurance companies saying, hey, you know what, there's going to there's going to be damage related to extreme weather. We got to we got to start mitigating that. Uh, you know, even if they're just talking about people changing how, how their roofs are, that's that's uh, could be some significant leverage when it comes to things like New York State's lofty uh, climate change and clean energy goals that it has over the course of the next decade. And there's a real question of is the state going to reach those goals? Well, now here's some leverage coming from an entire industry. Exactly. Yeah, I think you're right to point out that questions of fighting climate change and in particular decarbonizing um, the economy are kind of inextricably bound up in, in economic questions. Um, and yeah, for, for, for so long, and this is why we've seen not enough progress on this issue, uh, the, the economic incentives have not been toward uh, decarbonization. You know, there, there have been, kind of like government-led attempts to change that, of course, with certain credits and et cetera. Uh, but this is, this is an indication of like the, the market actually sort of shifting organically in response to extreme weather. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Philip, I want to thank you for going over these stories with us. Is there anything else you want to let folks know before we get going? 
Um, just to stay tuned to timesunion.com and timesunion.com slash Hudson Valley. Um, we have a lot more uh, interesting reporting coming out this week and next. All right. Absolutely. And we'll check in with you again next week. Uh, Philip, thank you so much for joining us. Take care. And again, all those stories are up at timesunion.com. And Philip Pantuso joins us every Thursday here on the local edition. When we come back, the connection between New York nonprofits and the West Bank. Stay with us. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Peter Knight, the ponytailed fiddle player in Steel Ice Band for decades, now has his own band, Gig Spanner. Next time on The Waggle of the Monkeys with me, Graham Rice, here on Radio Catskill, we hear both the large and the small versions of the band, plus the fine individual musicians who make it all work. Peter Knight's Gig Spanner on Sunday afternoon at 3. Welcome back to the local edition news and information, keeping you connected in the Catskills, northeast Pennsylvania. I'm Jason Dole, and uh, next up to wrap up the program, uh, we are checking in with New York Focus uh, this week, and uh, the the story is a, a regional one as well as an international one. New York Focus has an article highlighting the fact that three New York nonprofit organizations are urging donors to contribute funds to provide combat gear to those settlers in the West Bank. Here to tell us more, joining us once again on the local edition, it's Chris Gilardi. Thank you so much, Chris, for being here. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Could you give us a little bit of background for those who might not be familiar about uh, the the story of settlers in the West Bank, and and then we'll get into uh, the New York nonprofit connection. Absolutely. So, um, if people are unfamiliar, um, in Israel and Palestine, there are two Palestinian territories. One of which is the Gaza Strip, which everybody has been um, seeing and reading about in the news. Uh, that's um, from where the attack on October 7th, was launched into southern Israel, and that's where the war is currently going on now. Um, Flying a little bit under the radar, I think, is the West Bank, which is the larger of the two territories. Um, It's it's on the West Bank of the Jordan River, and it's a Palestinian territory that has supposedly, for for many years, um, been the ideal location for a future Palestinian state. You'll probably hear a lot of... um, Politicians, American politicians, calling for a two-state solution to the Israel-Palestinian conflict, and one of those, uh, the Palestinian state would be in the West Bank. The problem is that Israelis and Israeli settlers, with the um, help and acquiescence of the Israeli government, um, have been setting up settlements in the West Bank, setting up um, their own towns, their own cities, their own villages, and really um, pushing Palestinians into smaller and smaller enclaves within their own territory. The territory itself is occupied by the Israeli military, and they kind of um, run the whole thing, although there is a separate Palestinian government. And a huge issue um, within that has been settlers, um, Israeli settlers launching attacks on Palestinian communities, trying to push them off their farmland, push them out of their towns, demolishing their homes. And this has been a thing for for quite a long time. It's been a, it's been a huge issue, especially in in recent decades. Um, and actually, 2023, before before the October 7th attack, it was the most violent year um, on record for um, settlers attacking Palestinian communities. There's 
some 250 settler attacks even before October 7th this year. And since then, um, the, that violence has only ramped up uh, with the backing of the Israeli military. Um, a lot of these like settler groups that have formed their own militias, more or less, have been um, launching these more or less vigilante attacks on Palestinian communities, especially on Palestinian farmers. It's resulted in a lot of violence. Um, yeah, and it's taken a lot of lives. So now can you elaborate on this connection between New York-based nonprofit organizations and Israeli settlers in the West Bank? And when you're talking about providing equipment, is this actually tactical equipment? Yeah. So what I found while reporting this out, there there are some um, nonprofit organizations that are based throughout the country, but some specifically in New York that um, provide um, assistance, mostly like um, monetary assistance and supplies to settlements in the West Bank, Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Um, it should be noted, I guess, here that these settlements are illegal under international law, but um, not necessarily illegal. Uh, it's not necessarily illegal to, to aid them under U.S. law. Um, so this has been a thing for a long time, um, since the mid-2000s at least, that some organizations have been, have been sending aid to these illegal settlements. But since October 7th, um, some of these groups have been fundraising to send um, settlers in, in some of the more violent settlements, um, like tactical equipment, like combat equipment. It's illegal to send firearms themselves, um, but they've been sending everything but firearms. They've been sending um, accessories that, that go on guns. They've been sending um, what are called conversion kits, which can turn pistols into rifles. Drones seem to be a very hot item. They, they will um, send like thermal camera equipped drones to some of these settler militias so they can um, surveil and keep an eye on Palestinian communities. Um, they'll send body armor and helmets, um, all sorts of things to, um, yeah, they say it's to protect against Palestinian violence, um, but it also really enables and, and beefs up their ability to launch these attacks on Palestinian communities in the West Bank. Has there been any response from New York State officials about this? Yeah, so it's, it's actually very timely. In May, so before October, well before October 7th, but in May of this year, um, a couple of state legislate, state legislators introduced, they call it the Not On Our Dime Act. And what it would do is it would, you know, they've been well aware of these um, nonprofits sending money and supplies to West Bank settlements for, for a long time. Um, and what it would do is it would equip the state attorney general to um, strip any um, organizations that that aid um, illegal settlements of their nonprofit status. It, it would allow the attorney general to, to crack down in other ways on these nonprofits. Um, so they introduced that legislation in May, and it was roundly criticized by um, other state legislators. 66 Democratic Assembly members, which is the majority of the Democratic conference in that body, um, signed on to a letter calling it um, a, an effort to demonize Jewish charities. Um, and so that legislation didn't really go anywhere. Um, I talked to Senator, um, Assembly members of Namdani, who was the uh, sponsor in that um, chamber, and he said he is likely to reintroduce it and is, is more dedicated than ever to this particular legislation. Um, I also talked to another assembly member, Jeffrey Dinowitz, 
um, who is one of the people who signed the letters condemning the Not On Our Dime Act. And he, to my actual surprise, said that he wasn't against the settlements in the West Bank at all. Um, keep in mind that these are illegal under international law, but he said it just wasn't a problem for him, and that's why he um, had a problem with the Not On Our Dime Act. He didn't think we should be targeting West Bank settlements at all. Well, but if if that proposed legislation got that type of response earlier in the year, after October 7th, I can't imagine something like that getting any more traction right now. Sure. That's a great point. It's it's an interesting political dynamic at the moment. Um, people are really um, digging in their heels, I think, on, on whatever side of this issue that they're on, um, which which. Uh, yeah, is really is illustrated by Assemblymember Dinowitz's comments. But also, it, it is interesting, especially like on the national level, a lot of um, really pro-Israel uh, politicians, I'm thinking of Senator Chuck Schumer, do, yeah, condemn West Bank violence. And like when Senator Schumer went to Israel recently, he said that he talked to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu about tamping down um, settlement violence in the West Bank. Um, so... And, like, yeah, local politicians haven't really said much on this. Governor Hochul, for all her comments um, in support of Israel, has really not mentioned the West Bank at all. Um, so, yeah, it, it is. I I can only foresee um, people continuing to dig in their heels. But, um, yeah, I guess I guess we'll see if, if the issue comes up again and the bill is reintroduced. And then on the side, again, of these actual uh, nonprofits, what's their take now? Have you talked to any of them or in your reporting? What are they thinking and feeling and doing right now? Yeah, great question. I, I tried multiple times to, to speak with all of the organizations that we mentioned in the piece, all the New York-based organizations that we mentioned in the piece, and none would respond. Um, but I have been reading some newsletters and some blog posts and some social media posts that they've put out, and it really seems... Um, that they see the current moment as existential. I, I should I should say like most these organizations more or less would like the West Bank for themselves. They would like it for Israelis. They they think it should be um, ruled uh, by Jewish Israelis exclusively, and they see the current moment as, as really um, as crucial to to that. Project. I, I think they they're they're framing it as um, a lot uh, as as sort of uh, more or less a war that um, Palestinians will be attacking them if they don't um, fortify their own settlements and their own efforts. Um, and their rhetoric is it's it's violent to to put it lightly. Um, in the article, we um, we mentioned one. Um, one guy, his name is uh, Daniel Luria. He's the executive director of an organization called American Friends of Eteret Kahanim, which is a, an organization that, um, that operates in occupied East Jerusalem. Um, and he went on an, an Instagram post, not, not, about, um, not about the West Bank, but about Gaza, saying that the Israeli Defense Forces should, should bomb Gaza, that they should bomb hospitals, that what they're doing is dealing with pure evil. Um, so, yeah, since October 7th, both in New York and in Israel and Palestine, it, it seems that everybody is um, is on high alert, to say the least. 
And it also sounds, taking this broadly, and again, it's a very uh, complicated and nuanced set of issues going on here, but it sounds like the people in support of these types of efforts are willing to mix what's going on with Gaza and what's going on in the West Bank. But there are some people who are calling for support from Israel, like you mentioned, Senator Schumer, who are making a distinction between these issues. Yes, yes. And I think that speaks to... The sort of disconnect between American politics when it comes to Israel-Palestine and Israeli politics. Um, in the U.S., there's still, uh, at least among the talking points uh, of high-level officials, there's still hope for a two-state solution. Um, they, they, there's a lot of support for a measured war on Gaza while encouraging um, the Israeli government to not, um, yeah, to, to keep its hands mostly off of Palestinian communities in the West Bank. And I think among um, the more ardent supporters of Israel's war in Gaza and its efforts in the West Bank, those those two are one issue. Yeah, because uh, however they end, whenever they end, at some point, the current hostilities will end. And then the question that will need to be addressed is what happens next? How 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 do people rebuild? How do people live Exactly. Yeah. Who knows where it takes us? I think, um, yeah, that, that's a great way to put it. The hostilities will end at some point, but um, where they end and what reality that, that leaves us with um, is an open question. Chris Gilardi, New York Focus. Thank you so much for going over this with us and thank you for doing the work. Thank you so much for having me on again. It's great. The article is New York Charities Send Combat Gear to West Bank Settlements. We've been speaking to the author, Chris Gilardi. And that's going to do it for the local edition tonight. I've been your host, Jason Dole. Thank you so much for listening. Do keep on listening. The Daily is up next, and our local music lineup for Thursday evening starts at 7 with Ramble Tamble. This is Radio Catskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Neversink General Store, featuring deli sandwiches, gourmet specials, and catering. The NeversinkGeneralStore.com. From The River Reporter, the community newspaper covering four counties in Pennsylvania and New York along the Upper Delaware River. RiverReporter.com. And from listeners like you, who donate at 